The last few weeks have, uh, I guess, been a little bit heavy. <laughs> We've been tackling some big subjects and some big topics. And uh, when Marion and I were talking about what, uh, what I was going to talk about this morning, she said, can we just talk about hope? Can we just talk about how we get to hope and how we can be hopeful through all of this? And I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. I think that's what we need to talk about. But, of course, you all know me well enough to know that it's going to be a bit of a journey to get there, right? So, so um, yeah, fasten your seatbelts a little bit, but that's it. We have been through so much. How do we cultivate, maintain a sense of hope? How do we cultivate and maintain a positive attitude? Years ago, when, when I was in a, in a band, I remember the, uh, the, the band director saying, protect your attitude. <laughs> it was at a time when things were getting a little contentious and a little testy. People were getting a little uh, on the negative side. Protect your attitude. And of course, at the time, I thought that was just a big cop-out on his part. You know, If he would do his job, then I wouldn't be so negative, right? You know, Protect your attitude. You know? Now, Tim, if you're anywhere out there hearing... I'm sorry. <laughs> you were right. We can protect our attitude. We absolutely can. And we can maintain a sense of hope. But it's going to take some effort. It takes some doing. So that's what we want to talk about. These last few months have been a, basically a perfect storm, if you want to think about that. I think of it that way. There's been so many things that have come and, and just had this confluence right over our dinner table, it seems like. You know, what are we supposed to do with all this? The COVID came along, the pandemic came along, and exposed some of our major and cherished institutions, the ones that we rely on, the ones that had sterling reputations as being ineffective, you know, as being inefficient. WHO, CDC, I never thought of those as anything but having the absolute word on stuff. And, and now we just don't know anymore. Can we get good information? And there's been a, a chink in the armor. It's like we've lost confidence. A lot of us have, at least. You know? Can we still rely on them to protect us? Can we expect them to be there for us and have our best interest at heart? There, there is a lack of confidence kind of generally speaking. The lockdown exposed our society, our economy, and our very way of life as being way more fragile than we ever thought possible. I never thought it was possible not to have a baseball season. How is this possible? How can there not be baseball in the summer? You know, things that you just thought were absolutely there and would always be there, and suddenly we realize that they are unstable, maybe even illusory the stability that we thought was there in our society. One thing that just kind of flashed is I realized as we locked ourselves down is that the government is basically living paycheck to paycheck. I never thought of it that way before. You know, We're all supposed to have three months of, of uh, earnings in the bank, right? So we can run Does the government have that? I don't think so. As soon as everything stopped, they're in panic mode. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Some of these things have shaken our confidence again. Can we rely on our society? Can we expect our society to protect us, to remove the risk in our lives? The lockdown has exposed the cracks in our own families, in our marriages, in our homes. As the stress has gotten worse, we get more of what we've got. And a lot of people have found that the relationships have been frayed and tattered and, and pulled to the breaking point. That has been exposed for us. The civil unrest that followed the COVID and the lockdown Maybe this is just me, but it's exposed a lot of our leaders as being ineffective. 
as having an inability to act, to have any solutions that would be in our best interest. And so once again, can we rely on them? Can we expect them to protect us, to remove the risk in our lives? And so this perfect storm, at least for me again, has been experienced kind of as a strange juxtaposition. Because on one level, here, especially in Orange County, life seems kind of normal. I mean, the sun is shining. You can go to the store and there's stuff on the shelves. There's gas in the car. You know, the, the basic pieces of life are there. You can walk down the streets and it's still orderly. But underneath it all, there is this growing disturbance, this wondering, this, this loss of confidence, growing unrest that is affecting our emotions, affecting our thought patterns, affecting our behavior patterns. A lot of the people that I'm talking to are being affected in just this way. There's a lot of depression, anxiety, stress being ex- expressed to me. Uh, I had one lady <laughs> who is the sweetest lady you'd ever want to meet, and she said she finds herself kind of uncontrollably yelling at the TV news, you know, just getting so angry at what she sees there. And she says, and what comes out of my mouth isn't real pretty, you know. And we were tired, and just like, really? You know, it's just so hard for me to believe. Oh, yeah, you know. Another person or several people have come to me and they've been talking about the fact that they're afraid that we are in the end times and what's the mark of the beast going to be like and what's this all about and, and how are we supposed to react and the stress and the anxiety is in some of them making it very difficult for them to just maintain the relationships in their house. Some of you are working in retail. I've been talking to you that are working in retail and I've been hearing more and more that the customers are just getting mean unreasonably mean and, and for no apparent reason. You know, underneath the facade of the world the way it looks, like it's, it's all sort of still intact, there is this growing unrest and it's coming out in the way that we are acting. It's coming out in negative emotions. And when the negative emotions come out, and talking to some of these people, I've been pointing out, and for myself too, it's always a result of fear. Fear is always a driver of negative emotions. So the question to ask yourself whenever you're finding yourself being triggered and acting out in ways that are not typical for you is, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? What is it down there that is driving this up here that is starting to compromise my relationships? Now, I can think of two big fears that, uh, that have been expressed to me, uh, either implicitly or explicitly, and that I'm experiencing myself. One of them is the fear of losing your own health, losing the health of someone you love, losing the life of someone you love, losing your own life, um, losing your livelihood. Everything that the pandemic and the lockdown and the civil unrest have created in us is a fear of losing those things. And the result of it is being angry at the leaders, angry at the institutions that are supposed to be staving this off, that are supposed to be protecting us from these sorts of things. Why aren't they doing that? But it's that fear of loss that is driving it. The other fear that I think that I'm seeing over and over is the, f- the fear that our normal life, the one that we knew, is never going to return. And what is going to be taking its place? What is that going to look like? 
if we can't have our life back. It seems to be getting delayed more and more and more. Is it ever coming back? Will it ever be coming back? And so then again, there's anxiety and there's stress. There's anger at the restrictions that are being placed on us and anger at the leaders who are placing those, those restrictions. But the fear is that the life I knew may not be coming back. And guess what? The life we knew is not coming back. We got to manage our expectations here. Life as we knew it before 9-11 never came back, did it? Life was changed by that event. This is going to be much deeper and much more profound a change because it's affected so much more of our country at pretty much every level of life. How do we think that we're going to come back from this and have the life that we had before? The normal isn't going to return, and so at some level, I think we know that, and we're grieving that loss. And what is the stages of grief but the anger and the depression and the bargaining? (laughs) How many of those things have we gone through? on the way to some sort of acceptance. For me personally, I'm just kind of getting weary of everything being a contention, everything being a fight. Everything that we try to do has right and left and polarized this and that and everybody having an opinion. It's like there is no simple anything anymore. And I'm really weary and tired of the rules always changing. I don't know about you, but it's like every time I think I have a rule that I can follow and we can get through this and we get to the other side, and then it changes all over again. And that's not necessarily anybody's fault. You know, we're following the curve of the virus as well. But my gosh, where is there some solid ground to stand on here? So I painted a pretty bleak picture here already, right, haven't I? Where's the hope, you're asking? Come on, get to the hope part. There was a uh, radio show that I was listening to just as I was driving a couple of days ago, and uh, this woman comes on, and she was kind of talking about the same thing. How do we cope? How do we get through a lot of the stress that we're finding ourselves? And she had an acronym, and I tuned in a little late, so I don't even know what the word was that the acronym was for, but she was going on letter after letter after letter, and she had words like resilience and endurance and caring and mindfulness, you know, all stuff that was absolutely true, but I'll tell you what, I really just wanted to slap her. Because she came at it with this, you know, this really overly bright, sing-songy kind of voice. And, and, oh, yes, be mindful and be caring and be all these things. And it's like, okay, that's true. But can we start to conceive of hope in a way that is, like, grounded in reality? That recognizes the pain that we're actually going through? That's not just skittering over the surface in such a way that even if it's true, it's becoming this platitude that's just annoying because it appears to be trivializing what we're actually going through. Is there a way to hope that is actually grounded, meets us where we are, and can take us forward in such a way that it's acknowledging the real struggle that's involved here? This is not just easy. You can't just tape an acronym to your refrigerator door and have it somehow take away the pain, somehow take away the struggle and the anxiety. Is there a way to hope that feels like real life? And not only like real life, but is actually doable at the same time. I want to take a left turn here and present something that I have presented before, but it's been a long time. And unfortunately, this is going to take us a little bit further into left field, but stay with me here. How many of you have heard of the Warsaw Ghetto? Okay, a few of you have. 
In the run-up to World War II, Nazi Germany uh, always was aware of what they called the Jewish problem. There were about 11 million Jews living in, in Europe before World War II, and they wanted them gone. And through the early 30s up until 1939, when they finally invaded Poland and started World War II, there were increasing pressure put on, on the Jews and, and trying to isolate them, strip their rights, uh, identify them with the yellow star of David and you know, encourage them to emigrate and, and so on and so forth until the war started and then everything began in earnest. They were rounded up and they're put in concentration camps or cor- uh, sections of city were, were just walled off and cordoned off and they were called the ghettos and they were put in there. When Germany marched into Poland on September 1st in 1939, that's exactly what they did. They rounded up all the Jews, and they cordoned off a 1.3-square-mile section of the city. Think about this, 1.3 square miles. At the height, there were over 460,000 Jews crammed into 1.3 square miles. There was an average of, I don't know how they got this statistic, 9.2 people per room in the Warsaw Ghetto. Try to imagine living with nine or ten people in each room of wherever it is that you're living. They crammed them in. They starved them. They didn't give them any medical supplies. Again, I don't know how they got these statistics, but the average calories that the Germans allowed Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto was 184 calories per day. Now, any of you who know calories, because I don't know calories that well, but if you know calories, 184 calories is one-tenth of what a normal adult should be getting per day. By contrast, the Gentile Poles that were occupied were getting 699 calories a day. The Germans, the soldiers, and the administrators were getting 2,600 calories per day. 184 calories without any medical attention crammed into conditions that are the opposite of social distancing. And you can understand what was happening. They were hoping that they would just die out. But here's the thing about the Jewish people that is so incredible. From the whole 4,000 to 4,500 years that we have known of them historically, this is a people that will not go down. These people are amazing. Whatever you throw at them, they will not go down. Even in the face of what I'm trying to tell you, they, they found a way to even kind of flourish. A black market arose, of course, for food. 80% of what those Jews were eating was through black market smuggling across the, 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 the brick walls and the makeshift barriers and, and razor wire and everything that the, the Germans put up. And it was mostly the children that would find ways to crawl through the barriers and get to the other side and get what they needed from sympathetic Aryans, um, Gentile Poles on the other side, or eventually they started having secret workshops where they made products that then they were trading for food. And the kids were bringing sometimes hundreds, hundreds of kids a day, sometimes several times a day, crossing the barriers, going to the other side, bringing things back, sometimes bringing loads that weighed as much as they did. But they found a way to be able to keep the supplies going, to try to keep. And as they continued to work, the, Jews, uh, the Germans kept squashing them further and further down, you know, and, and yet they kept coming back. They put together underground hospitals, soup kitchens, 
orphanages, recreation centers, libraries, a symphony orchestra. They had a symphony orchestra underground. Those workshops we talked about, synagogues, schools, and spiritual leaders, they created a whole underground society that had all the bits and missing pieces that were being restricted and taken away from them. And the Germans realized everything that they were doing was still not working. And so finally, they had to implement the final solution, which you may have heard about, which is then to deport them into the death camps and simply kill them. Statistics you'll usually see is that 6 million Jews were killed out of the 11 million. But sometimes some people say that number is too low and it doesn't account for other killings. This is a people that to me has always been amazing because they have been able to take some of the greatest flights of spiritual advancement under some of the worst conditions. And their spiritual leaders were amazing. The spiritual leader of the ghetto was a rabbi and his name was uh, Kalanimus Kalman Shapira. He was a Hasidic Jew, contemplative, a mystic, you know, so right away he's got my attention, right? But when the, G- when the Germans first aerial bombed Warsaw before they came in on the ground, his only son and his daughter-in-law and his sister-in-law were all killed in the bombing. When the, when the Germans finally came in, he was rounded up and put into the Warsaw ghetto. He immediately went to work, though. He was adamant. He spent an amazing amount of energy, all of his energy, to try to maintain Jewish life under these kind of circumstances. He ran a secret synagogue. He had a school. He taught young people. He taught everyone, and they had their services. He developed ways to consider, continue to have kosher weddings. Uh, there were still weddings going on uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, he found the way to, to do mikvah, which were baptisms uh, and cleansings for the people. He put so much energy into making sure that their life continued on. As the war was, was winding down and the, the Germans were realizing well, all, everything they were doing wasn't working, and they started sending the people to concentration camps, he was able to avoid all those until pretty much the very end. And then he got sent to a work camp, and he was given an opportunity to escape. And he refused. He wanted to stay with his people. And he was eventually shot when the entire camp was obliterated um, before they could be liberated. How do we know anything really about him? I mean, it's not like there was a lot of news coming out of the Warsaw Ghetto. Everything that he wrote, he compiled into a book. And he called it Innovations on the Torah, which is a real interesting, just very simple name. Innovations on the Torah. But it's so important to think about that. The innovations that he was writing about was how he had to adapt everything that he believed in, everything that they had done for thousands of years in this particular situation. And so it was a compilation of sermons and teachings that he had given to his students and in synagogue. And when he realized that the end was coming, he took that along with all, a lot of the other documents that the spiritual leaders and, and all the administrative leaders were compiling, and they sealed them into milk canisters and buried them after the war, construction workers found them, and they were unearthed, and we got to get a little bit of a, a view into what was going on at this time. How these people were able to continue to find hope, continue to find a way forward in what are the absolute worst conditions that you could ever imagine. 
I wanted to read to you just a little bit of what uh, Rabbi Shapira says. This actually comes from uh, a book called The Zookeeper's Wife, and some of you may have seen the, the movie on that as well. But the author talks about that the weak, the sick, the exhausted, the hungry, the tortured, and insane all came to Rabbi Shapira for spiritual nourishment, which he combined with leadership and with soup kitchens. How did he, imagine, how did he manage such feats of compassion while staying sane and creative? How did he keep those innovations going, right? By stilling the mind and communing with nature. This is a direct quote from Shapira. One hears God's teaching voice from the world as a whole. From the chirping of the birds, the mooing of the cows, from the voices and tumult of human beings, from all these one hears the voice of God. All our senses feed the brain, and if it diets mainly on cruelty and suffering, how can it remain healthy? Change that diet on purpose, train mentally to refocus the mind, and one nourishes the brain. Rabbi Shapira's message was that, even in the ghetto, common people could temper their suffering in this way, not just monks and ascetics and rabbis. And it's especially poignant that he chose for meditative practice the beauty of nature, because for most people in the ghetto, nature lived only in memory. No parks, birds, or greenery existed in the ghetto, and they suffered the loss of nature like a phantom limb pain, an amputation that scrambled the body's rhythms, starved the senses, and made basic ideas about the world impossible for children to fathom. Do you see what he's doing here? Think about Paul at Philippians. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. Do you see how Paul is saying the exact same thing that Rabbi Shapira is saying? Find the beauty, find the connection, find the goodness. Dwell on that. It will be there. It may be hard to find. It may be rare in certain situations that you find yourselves in, but it's always there. And since there's only one source of goodness in this entire universe, when you find the good in whatever way you find it, you're looking at the face of God. Paul at Romans 12:2 has another similar idea. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul and Rabbi Shapira are both saying the same thing here. Focus the mind on what is good, what is desirable. Renew your mind by not being stuck in the negative, in the crisis that you find around you but mindfully connect with the beauty in life, even if it's only remembered at this point. Connect with that. Renew your mind with that. See God in all of the goodness. Beyond the cruelty, beyond the pain, God still is present. I've had the, the thought lately that God's 
presence is like background radiation. And I don't know if you know what background radiation is. It's like the, the astronomers look out at the universe, and when they look at the space between the spaces where there's nothing there, you know, and they can look farther and farther and farther out, what they're finding is there is this residual radiation left over from the Big Bang itself. You know, and it's still out there at the farthest reaches of the expansion of things. And so even when you think it's absolutely quiet, there's no energy whatsoever, there's always this background radiation that's there. But you've got to get really quiet. You've got to be looking at the space between the spaces if you're going to be aware of this background radiation. It's always there. You can't get away from it. But you can certainly mute it. You can certainly obscure it. But if you focus back on the good, if you don't allow yourself to be lost in the pain and everything that you see around us that's wrong with this world, which will overwhelm you, because there's so much wrong with this world. But if we can still do this, we can see God in the goodness. We can find that background radiation. How? First and foremost, by focusing on each other. On each other grounded in maintaining our daily life. How did Shapira do what he did? It wasn't esoteric. It wasn't just out there in the ether someplace. He worked every day to maintain the daily life of his people, to serve them, to focus on them, to find a way to make life as normal as possible, even though it was radically different, to innovate, to be creative, to find new ways to do things that they had done all their lives. And generations back, immemorial, but find new ways. Continue to focus on each other. Be grounded in that reality. He continues, the ideal way Shapira taught was to witness one's thoughts to correct negative habits and character traits. A thought observed will start to weaken, especially negative thoughts, which he advised students not to enter into, but examine dispassionately. If they sat on the bank watching their stream of thoughts flow by without being swept away by them, they might achieve a form of meditation called hashkata, silencing the conscious mind. He also preached sensitization to holiness, a process of discovering the holiness within oneself. The Hasidic tradition included mindfully attending to everyday life. As 18th century teacher Alexander Suskind taught, when you eat and drink, you experience enjoyment and pleasure from the food and the drink. Arouse yourself every moment to ask in wonder, what is this enjoyment and pleasure? What is it that I am tasting? Pure contemplative practice is what Shapira is talking about. Pure contemplative practice. Stepping away from the egoic mind that we talk about all the time is what he's talking about here. It's our mind that will continue to drive a rut in our brain, continuing to worry over, rehearse over and over all the difficulties, all the cruelties, all the injustices, the, the, the mean customer that came. How long are you going to keep that spinning in your head? We will do that with our heads. We will continue to go to the negative because the mind is always trying to fix problems. So what's it going to do? It's going to focus on the problems. Where is the hope going to come from when we focus away from the problems, when we allow ourselves to be able to dwell on something that is good? This sensitization to holiness that he talks about, finding the sacred in everyday life, within ourselves, among the group, 
in the relationships, in the service that we can render. Some of these greatest flights of human faith that we're talking about occurred under the most hideous circumstances. Now, of course, it wasn't everybody who did this. You know, that would paint a wrong picture for you. It's not like the Jews are separate from the rest of humanity. And there were those who were collaborators with the Nazis. There were those who were actually involved in criminal enterprises, and they lived much better than the rest of the people. They were able to achieve a kind of wealth through their activities, right? And some of them lost their faith. Some of them got completely worn down. Shapira is very honest in his writings. He describes the deterioration of the people's faith in some quarters, and he was the one working against that, trying to reestablish the hope. But the fact that they achieved what they achieved and what they established, what they established means that in that bell curve, the most of them were carrying on with life in the midst of the suffering. They were able to do this. And what are the lessons from the ghetto that we can learn? And I don't want to in any way say that our situation here is anything like their situation there. That would be ridiculous and it would trivialize the pain and everything that they went through. But the principles that they used, the innovations and the creativity that they used to get through their circumstances with faith, with hope enough to continue on, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, to continue to have weddings and baptisms into their faith, if it worked for them in those circumstances, Jesus would say, how much more will it work for us in ours? The way to renew hope in difficult times from the ghetto, first, find creative ways to restore what is lost. Find creative ways to restore what is lost. It won't be the same. It can't be the same. That is lost. The restrictions are here. Whatever happened, happened. But we can celebrate them as enough if we allow ourselves to. Define these creative ways. You know, I was just reading articles on, on the internet and they were talking about now the uh, restaurants have to close back down again. You know? And it's just like, oh, right on, 4th of July weekend when everybody wants to be out and doing things, the restaurants have to close again. So what do the restaurants do? They started pulling all their tables out onto the sidewalks, into the street, and into the parking lots. And one woman said, I have never seen my city so alive as it is right now. Think about that for a second. A creative way to be able to do something that you can't do anymore, but replace it and even make it more alive than it was before. When I drove down El Camino Real through uh, San Clemente, big banner across, no fireworks permitted. And a lot of people, a lot of the cities, they stopped their, their no fireworks displays, no this, no that. So what happened last night? <laughs> Illegal fireworks everywhere. I couldn't believe it. We were listening to this. It sounded like Camp Pendleton was doing exercises in the field or something, you know? Now, don't go away saying, you know, Pastor Dave is, you know, extolling illegal behavior. No, I'm not really saying that. I'm saying that people were finding a creative way to continue to celebrate in their own way, to do something that said, we are still here. We are still celebrating. We are still families, Right? This is something that is huge if you think about it. We've been disallowed from having meetings pretty much. So what did we do? We started Zooming our meetings. Everybody is Zooming meetings. 
And we found that that has a place in our lives. In fact, it's allowed us to connect with people that we never connected before. Our Zoom meetings now have people from across the country. We've got Northern California. We've got Phoenix. We've got... um, at at times Brooklyn and Ohio and Georgia and we even had a guy from Germany logging in who found us online you know it's expanded our ability to connect and have community in ways that we didn't anticipate before and now the challenge is going to be when we do come back to live meetings how do we keep all that going so we can have a hybrid you know creative ways to do what we can't do anymore not the same but in some sense cases better but can we let it be enough how about you what are the things that you have now been disallowed to do what are the things that you miss doing what are the creative ways that you can put in place that will be just enough and maybe more than enough find creative ways to restore what is lost second create beauty in the midst of the rubble creating beauty in the rubble Again, driving, seems like I've been doing more driving lately, listening to a news report. La Mesa, are you familiar with La Mesa, just east of San Diego? There was one of the few cities in San Diego County that actually experienced rioting, rioting, looting, and burning. You know, it didn't happen in San Diego proper, but it happened there. And a lot of the businesses were devastated. And so the the Chamber of Commerce decided to do a GoFundMe page. And um, their goal was to raise $50,000 that they could distribute somehow within the businesses in downtown La Mesa that were affected. They've got over $250,000 and counting in that fund right now. And when they got to go down and actually start handing out the checks, many of the business owners were so overwhelmed, they just were reduced to tears. Volunteers have been coming out of the woodwork to help clean up and fix up those businesses in La Mesa. In many cases, the volunteers are getting there long before the business owners get there themselves. They show up and they've got this army of people. There have been so many volunteers some days that there's a lot of volunteers just standing around for there's nothing for them to do. Creating beauty in the rubble. Reestablishing the sense of community that somebody actually cares. They know now that people care about their community and each other in a way that they never knew last January. Creating beauty in the rubble. What is it that we can do? Not all of us can go down and clean up shops, but what is it that we can do to create beauty where it seems that there is rubble? Maybe metaphorically in our case, but not always. To find spiritual connection lived through each other. Spiritual connection, but this is most important. Not in an abstract way. Not in, in, in just an ethereal way. But to find spiritual connection lived through each other. Grounded in daily contact. Grounded in daily service and connection with each other. We've got to still be able to see God present and active and alive in each other in the goodness that is still present in us. When we see people showing up for no other reason than to help the businesses downtown and giving that time, giving that energy, giving their resources, that is a good that only ultimately comes from God. God is the only source of good, only source of selflessness. Can we see God in each other? Yesterday, I got to a 
pretty burned out, burned low place. I'm going to say burned out, burned low place. And everything in me just wanted to shut off and just go lie down or watch some dumb movie or something. I decided to go the other direction to actually practice what I preach, and I went for a walk. All right? So I started out, and I started walking, and it was one of these desert days. You know, It's just crystal clear, and the, the air, the sun is warm, but not overly hot. There's a breeze coming off the ocean. I mean, everything was just brilliant. The colors were almost just, you know, what, what's, the, what's the word for the black light? Why can't I hear that? Well, luminescent, let's just say. They are just rocketing off like black light colors. And as I'm walking, I'm hearing the sounds of people in their backyards, and they're barbecuing, and they're laughing, and there's music playing, and then I can smell the smoke from the barbecue coming over, and I'm hearing the laughter and everything, and I'm realizing they're finding a way. They're finding a way to live their lives. They're finding a way to enjoy their families and express their connection. And then... If, if, uh, if I had eye contact with anybody, they'd call out to me, happy 4th of July, and I'd call back, happy 4th of July, and, and then the dogs and the this and the that. There was this sense of just absolute connection, people just living and cooking and laughing, calling out to me, finding a way to be human within the restrictions that they find themselves. And it's so important for us to remember that bell curve that we talked about, right? That, that distribution curve. Most people are in the middle of the curve. Most people are simply decent people living their lives, loving their families, loving their country, loving as best they can, and wanting the best for everyone. We forget that sometimes because these people don't make the news. No. Can't put eyeballs in chairs for something that's just in the middle of the curve. It's the extremes that get the attention. We see those on the news all the time. Social media is self-fulfilling in that way. You know, it's going to be the extreme views that are going to get the attention, that are going to draw our eyes. But those people that are just salt-of-the-earth people, that are living their lives in a way to create beauty in the midst of everything that's here, they are there. If they weren't, then the sky really would be falling. If they weren't, the trains would no longer run on time. The fact that our society is still holding together as well as it is is because most of us, most of the people, are decent and good people trying to do best by their lights. We need to see that. You want hope? See that, which means you have to look beyond the headlines, beyond the social media flash. They're there. How do we get back to them? We've got to start with each other. How else are we going to do this? Do you realize that we are God's gift to us? Does that make sense to you? God has gifted us with each other. He has implanted himself in each one of us and gifted us to each other. Can we see that? Can we start to see that in each other, the good is still possible. We can see God's promises in the progress of their fulfillment in each other. And one of the most hopeful passages for me in the entire Bible is right at the end. Revelation 21. It's the scene where the new Jerusalem is coming to earth. Revelation 21, starting at verse 5. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. At the very end of the Bible, at the very end of the last book of the Bible, after 20 chapters in Revelation of terrifying images of death and destruction and pestilence and fire from the sky and all of those horrible images, we have a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem descending. Everything that was lost is restored. No matter what happens, our God is trying to get through to us. No matter what happens, nothing is ever lost. It's not lost. It changes form, but it's not lost. Our physicists know this. All the matter, all the energy that exists in this entire universe is fixed and finite. No more is being created, and nothing is being lost. It's only changing form, back and forth and back and forth. Our God is always on the throne, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. You want hope in life? Can you break through everything that is pressing on you negatively to see that truth in each other? Where do we see God's constant renewal, his constant changing of form? Where can we see that? Where do we go to see that? In each other. Where do we see where this renewal is taking place? Where do you see people actually changing fundamentally, being renewed, being born again? It's each other where we're going to see this truth. How do we make this real in our lives? in our lives, in each other? How do we keep it from becoming a platitude, from becoming so trivialized that it seems to have no connection with the real life and the real pain and the real situations we find ourselves in? In each other. That's where it becomes real. If we ground ourselves in real life, in God's life, it's only because we're grounding ourselves in each other's lives. That's the way this works. It's the only way that this can work. You know, nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. Don't we know this? Don't we sometimes create the deadline for ourselves so we can be more focused? I know I do. That's why I'm always working on the message until 1.30 in the morning on Sunday because I'm creating the deadline. Nothing focuses the mind like a deadline. And so when a person gets to the end of their life, they know that they are the, at the end of their life and they are speaking to you with what probably will be the last words that they ever get to say to you. 
don't you think that maybe that's something you would want to listen to really hard? The last words that someone speaks to you is everything pent up, everything in them, everything that they've accumulated that they want to say to you. I know some of you have heard the story of the gospel according to Lou, my friend Lou Sowers. And for those of you who haven't, or just to review, he was a great friend of mine and Marion's at uh, a church that we were at previously. And he had diabetes, and he got to the point in his life where the dialysis was just too much, and he just said, no more. And he stopped the dialysis. And so at that point, of course, the clock was ticking. And he had to go into the hospital. And the last time that Marion and I saw him, we visited him in his room. And he was there, and he was uh, still looking pretty good for him, but we could see the toll that it was taking on him. And we talked for a while, and when we realized he was getting tired and we needed to go, as we got up to left, he st- leave, he stopped us, and he took all of our hands in his hands. He was holding our hands. And he looked right into our eyes. And he said, love each other. Just love each other. And then he waited a beat, and he said, and kid around a little bit. Love each other. Just love each other. And kid around a little bit. And that were the last words that... I heard my friend Lou say. When Jesus is in the same position and he's giving the last words to his closest friends and followers at the Last Supper, what does he say? With that same intensity, with that knowing that he's leaving the last thing that he can leave them, right, before they go through their own trials in life, at John 13, verse 34, He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have this love for one another. Two men giving last words to the people they love, and they say the exact same thing. Love each other. It's in each other that you will find everything that you need because in each other you will find your God. In each other you will ground the knowing of your God, the relationship with your God in what is real in this life. Apart from this, there is no knowing of God. It's in each other. What would be the most important thing that you would want to say to someone for the last time? What would you want to leave them with? The last words of these two men are ringing, and it's all about each other, focusing on each other, loving and cherishing each other, finding our purpose, our meaning, our identity, our God in each other. We need to renew our hope. We need to find trust in difficult times. What Jesus is saying what Rabbi Shapira is saying, what Paul is saying, what my friend Lou is saying, is that our hope is right here in each other. We are God's gift of himself to us in each other. If we start there, we will find this hope and we will be able to persevere and endure and even thrive whatever circumstances we find ourselves in.
Let's pray. Father, you've given us to each other. Thank you for this gift. Help us to continue to follow the example of those who have gone before in much more difficult circumstances. How they were able to find you in each other, to find how to creatively continue to live, to build, to marry, to bring new people into community, to do all the things that life is about in new ways and let it be enough and to continue to find new hope and new inspiration in every face encountered. Help us to do that more and more each day, Lord. Help us to keep the perspective that we need to realize that all is not lost. Nothing is ever lost in you. Help us to see that you are still making things all brand new every single day in each one of us and with each turning of this world. Thank you, Father. Keep us strong. Stoke our desire to want to leave no stone unturned as we continue to move deeper and deeper into your love. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget that we can only love it all or do any of this at all because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.